so I had to cycle out to Pool Dyke to get a corona test, which was, yeah, an, an, an unpleasant experience in many ways. It's Friday, January 21st, is it? Yes, it is. And this is the Dutch News Podcast. <laughs> Your weekly <laughs> chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Paul Peters, master's student in civil engineering and Rita Verdonk campaign video correspondent. <laughs> and with me today is Gordon Derek, contributing editor at Dutch News. And you are officially a WAPI now. Well, so you protested so, so you the corona me. measures. <laughs> I it's got sort of roped in or roped myself into yeah, uh, joining in the, uh, the, the the culture sector's protest this week because there's been a series of protests which we'll talk about a bit later on in the in, in the podcast. But yeah, I ended up getting my hair cut in a theatre this week illegally. Illegally, yes, I had an illegal haircut in a yeah. in, in a theatre in the, uh, the theatre converted from a swimming bath, um, and it was uh, very yeah very exciting and um, kind of yeah I had like a I suppose what you call a bootleg haircut or a bandit haircut. It was a bit like uh, sort of being in a 1920s speakeasy during Prohibition, where at yeah. any minute you had the feeling that at any minute the feds could come in and bust the joint. Well, yeah. the boas. Uh, well, the boas uh, would probably come yeah. in and just give everyone a stern ticking off and a fine. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I think I think the boas you can handle. I mean, if if, they, yeah. if they, these were the feds, then you had a real problem at boas you can handle. They don't have tasers so. yet. Um, yeah. And it, it, the whole thing was live streamed. You didn't realize this, I didn't but it realize was at the time. But yes, actually, when I was uh, afterwards, I went on to the. Um, it was at uh, the New Echentes, which is a local community theater uh, in the neighborhood in the Hague where I, where I live. Um, and yeah, they, they put the whole thing up on YouTube, which I didn't realize until after I'd had the haircut. So you can actually go onto YouTube and watch me having my Haircut. Yeah, you had a nice photo taken um, <laughs> of you sitting in this uh, barber's seat in, in yeah. the middle of this theater, empty theater, almost empty theater. Well, it lo- a number of waiting customers, I believe, in the background, right? Or well, what it was uh, is that there was about um, I think there were about sixty people there, and most of them, yeah. uh, well, a lot of people were just went with their partner or you know in, in, in a small family group. Everyone kind of kept social distancing. It was kind of very yeah. funny because although we were, this was an entirely illegal event designed to protect against and break the rules we all actually they're very particular about making sure that everyone had a qr code when they went in we all wore masks we all yeah. kept social distance and uh, you know observed all the corona rules except for the one about theaters not being allowed to open so yeah because there's some someone was singing i believe on the stage while your hair was yes. being cut right yeah yes. i um I'm, i mean uh, I have lost a lot of sympathy against protesters in a couple of years, uh, but this was one of the few uh, protests I uh, 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 I agreed with, and I thought it was uh, really nicely done. And as you said, uh, uh, they just showed how you could open theaters again, right? Just have a QR code and uh, 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 make sure people keep their distances. And, yeah, and um, probably limited uh, numbers as well. I mean, it was about, I don't know how many they fit in the theater, but it was clearly, you know, if you, if you had a theater that was like one third, full or something and yeah. the performance didn't last longer than an hour then you'd probably be okay yeah, yeah. speaking of uh, performances um mm, yes rita verdonk <laughs> rita verdonk she's managed last week we talked about rita verdonk's famous um video with the people in the swimming baths with the water up to their lips and now you're, you're are you now going to tell me paul that she's made an even worse one 
It is worse. Yeah, <laughs> I would say. Yeah. Um, Richard de Mos, uh, he has a, a political party, local political party in The Hague, and uh, he sort of made a YouTube video presenting uh, all the candidates for uh, the upcoming municipality election. Um, um, Rita Verdonk is number two, as we said, and but mm-hmm. they did it in a sort of uh, James Bond parody-like <laughs> video. Uh, yeah. So they had, um, uh, you know, at the beginning of one of the classic uh, James Bond movies, you have this sort of uh, yeah, what is it? Visor that follows James you have Bond. Yeah, sort of fisheye, don't you? And it pans across, and then suddenly it sort of catches um, the, the the silhouette of, the, of James Bond, and, and it sort of tracks him, and then suddenly he appears and fires a gun. Of yeah, course, this exactly. time it wasn't James Bond. Was it? It was 25 times. They did this 25 times with <laughs> with every candidate. They repeated this. So it was this endless stream of repetition and it becomes yeah. really boring. And they also have yeah. the James Bond soundtrack underneath it, but it has this you know repetitive stuff that they just extended, extended, extended. So it is mm. uh, five minutes of, you know, excruciating repetition but Rita Verdonk <laughs> is the number two so you only have to watch it for uh, a short time to 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 see the highlight uh, but they also had um, uh, one uh, one one candidate is called uh, Constant Martini yeah that's his name so I think is, that's his name yeah that's his so, actual so name shake, yeah, yeah so so what's the joke about Constant Martini well, I think they just thought about um, uh, uh, shaken, not stirred. You know, yes. James Bond's favorite favorite drink, and they thought about you know this this one element of the joke, and they built the whole campaign video around it. But w- what I thought the only one nice thing about this was that they changed the uh, aerial code of the Hague O uh, seventy. Yeah. Uh, they turned the 007 into O seventy. So that was the only nice thing they did, I think. Uh, yeah. But for the rest, it was just excruciating and. A terrible video again and it's worse than yeah. the, the the other one because the other one has you know something happens at least something happens in that video in in that campaign yeah. video the first one and this is just endless repetition <laughs> so Rita Fadonk queen of cringe strikes again queen of cringe, with, her, yeah, with her filmmaking exactly. skills yes yeah so, so speaking of unsavory um, v- videos, and uh, th- th- that brings us to the Ophef of the week, which you have to say is uh, has, has blown up rather beyond Ophef. But anyway, to take it away, Paul. What is the Ophef of the week this week? It comes from Hilversum, where TV talent show The Voice of Holland is under fire after mounting allegations of sexual assault and harassment came out. Uh, yeah, as you said, this is probably a bit too serious to qualify as Ophef under this podcast definition, but it's nonetheless the one and only thing that everyone has been talking about this week in the Netherlands. So yeah, we simply cannot uh, avoid it. Um, uh, yeah, th- there were rumors about sexual misconduct among people involved in the talent show, uh, people who work behind the scenes, but also uh, the the coaches. Uh, and these rumors have been circulating for quite some time. But the, uh, the ball really started to roll this week when TV presenter and documentary maker and also Twitter persona Tim Hofman dedicated an episode of his YouTube show Bose to the talent show. It's uh, yeah, We are recording now on Thursday. It uh, mm. came live on Thursday afternoon. So... We both hadn't uh, uh, had time to watch the whole uh, almost one and a half hour thing, but you know we've read in the media what it is about, so we uh, we, we 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 know the details. Um, We're sort of informed about it, yeah. 
Yeah, we're sort of informed about this. Um, 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 Bo's, Tim Hoffman's show, had received multiple allegations by women who claim they have been the victims of inappropriate sexual behavior by members of the talent show's team. And after uh, after Hoffman presented the TV channel with the findings of his investigation on Saturday, RTL Netherlands immediately decided to put the broadcast of The Voice of Holland on hold. Uh, it was later revealed that the allegations or uh, one of the allegations were directed at Jeroen Rietbergen, that's the leader of the show's live band, and uh, he is also the husband of TV presenter Linda de Mol, and she is the sister of John de Mol, the owner of a television company, Talpa, who produced the show, and he's also the one who yeah, came up with the concept of The Voice and sold it to many uh, countries around the world. Wherever you're listening uh, uh, to us, uh, from which country you probably have a the voice of uh, in your country um, mm. and uh, it also turned out that the rapper and uh, the show's coach Ali Bey has also been accused of sexually inappropriate behavior and two women even have filed official complaints against him uh, for uh, rape and also um, Marco Bersato who was also involved in the mm. show uh, is also named in the allegations and he you know there's also a spin-off of the show The Voice Kids and uh, he was also a judge there and he uh, is also uh, there's also allegations that he misbehaved against children in this particular show so you have really serious allegations and um, yeah, it's uh, it, it's sort of blowing up as we're speaking, by the way, and uh, mm. it, it it resembles of the Harvey Weinstein case in the United States. It's just so big, and it turns out that everyone involved sort of knew about it or you know had some knowledge about it, and uh, nobody have stepped in uh, for all these years that this TV show is uh, is going on. Yeah, it's been unraveling, hasn't it, over the course of the last week? And there's a lot of speculation at the early in the week about uh, just how serious these allegations are going to be. And I think uh, even some uh, uh, defenders or friends of uh, John Demol and various other people involved in the show have went on TV shows to try and downplay the allegations before we even yeah. knew what they were. That is not looking like a very clever move in hindsight. I think t- to me there were two big clues that this went beyond just you know like I don't know a, a junior presenter making an inappropriate comment to an intern or something. It was more substantial than that. The first was yeah. that as soon as it came out, uh, Linda de Mol put out a very short statement on her website saying that her relationship with Jeroen Rietbergen was over. Like, that yeah. was it. She was just dumping him. You know, but, but dumping him by press release. I don't think that's something that you do unless you've heard something really quite serious, you know, just on the spot. And the other one was the fact, just the fact the show was was cancelled straight away. I mean, you think about the enormous sums of money involved and it, w- w- what these celebrities are being paid to be on it and the kind of contracts they'll have and the amount of compensation that they will now they will now be entitled to. It's not again. That's not a decision that you make lightly on the basis of some vague, unsubstantiated allegations. It was clearly something more, more serious going on. And now we're starting to get the full picture. I think, and it's going to come out over the next several weeks, probably. Yeah, and it's a very bad picture and a very nasty picture. And mm. uh, yeah, it's it's developing as we're talking now. Uh, so uh, yeah, we don't have the, the complete details. Uh, but yeah, uh, um, when I wrote this, I only decided to name this the Opaf of the Week. We thought it was much, it was just a celebrity gossipy thing, mm. but it, it, it turned out to be much bigger than that. But uh, there is some side Opaf, which we can qualify as uh, as Opaf. Yeah. For example, um, yeah, it's been the talk of town uh, the, uh, for for, for the entire week now in the Netherlands, everybody's talking about it. Everyone wants to know uh, how it ends. And the Telegraaf even sent a reporter to the media park in Hilversum to the mm. uh, to the uh, parking lot over there to 
to interview people who are driving there what they what they think about the the, the saga and uh, yeah. in the video the the reporter even asked uh, a DHL guy uh, what he thought about it as he was <laughs> eating a sandwich I believe I mean yeah. completely irrelevant people no. but uh, it it just uh, shows how 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 big the um, uh, uh, this story is here in the Netherlands and yeah uh, this yeah. Telegraph car park guy as well he was standing there uh, commenting on uh, the fact that someone inside the building was ordering a sandwich from the canteen right. Exactly. Kind of yeah, it's yeah. that kind of desperation. I mean, the Telegraph basically have been beaten on this story, so someone else got there first, and they're desperately just trying to catch up and pick up any kind of angle of their own they can have, even if it's just. I think also he he tried to go and to speak to Emma was it Emma Vortelboer, the, the woman who did the Eurovision a couple of years ago. Yeah, um, there was Emma and she was on the phone, and it was just him saying, uh, oh, "Are you on the phone?" Yes, and then he asked, "How long are you going to be on the phone?" And she just walked away. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and uh, he he asked he he looked into uh, cars that were driving by to see if it was anyone who worked for the voice of Hall. it was just a, 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 a yeah it, it, it's all very surreal uh, <laughs> if you if you really think about it and also rtl news did a live blog about it uh, for example yes. uh, i mean the dutch they love live blogs of course the dutch, the dutch media, media will just do a live blog about literally anything you know the drop yeah. of a hat it's like a, yeah yeah, but just uh, just to show how how intertwined all the relations and all of the interests are in this in this particular show, for example, uh, 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 the the person who was first accused is the band leader. He is married to Lina de Mol, who is the sister of the guy who came up with the show, and he uh, was um, also a a uh, DJ duo with. Erland Galliard, who is the owner and was the CEO of RTL, the, the channel which broadcasted um, uh, The Voice of Holland. He was married to Wendy van Dijk, the presenter of the show. I mean, it's all just yeah. this very tiny bubble. and It's, it's all just, incredibly incestuous, isn't it? This, yeah, uh, whole, and it's just... Uh, uh, world. And it's, it's unimaginable that nobody involved heard about these things or knew about it, especially because... Uh, uh, you know, people on lower levels uh, knew about this as well, and uh, um, yeah, it's um, it's definitely not something that uh, uh, we end talking about today. No. Yes, no. It will uh, certainly there'll be a lot more news coming out, and uh, we will yeah bring you up to speed with it as it breaks. This week, uh, the brand new health minister and dark lord has to come into action and decide if the Netherlands is ready for more uh, corona relaxations. Prime Minister Mark Rutte defended his new cabinet's plans in Parliament and turned out not to be a new person. Houses are going to be more expensive. A new book claims to have fined uh, the person who betrayed Anne Frank, uh, which received a lot of critique. And I assume there's some sport news. I have no idea. There is, there is a bit of sport news, yeah. Okay. Just a little. The government is coming under increasing pressure to relax the coronavirus restrictions from the culture, catering and event sectors. A series of protests took place this week to highlight the perceived discrepancies in the rules. On Wednesday, theatres were turned into impromptu hair salons, uh, as we've uh, been talking about, for the Capsalon Theatre protest, and museums reopened as gyms. So a slightly surreal spectacle of uh, people having their people having their hair cut in the Van Gogh Museum, which I thought was a very risky thing to do, given the Van Gogh's record with with scissors and knives. But uh, I think everyone made the joke, didn't they? About uh, you know, do, 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 do you want me to leave the ears or or take them off? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I saw this joke on 
on on so many occasions but the first <laughs> time i saw it i had to laugh but then yeah. you know everybody started to making it and then yeah. at some point yeah. it was like a rita verdonk uh, campaign video all over again with this joke <laughs> it was yeah uh that came on the back of a protest by cafes and restaurants in several cities at the weekend when they opened in defiance of the rules and the mayors said that they, that's absolutely fine we'll just turn a blind eye Although for some reason the mayors then said they were going to enforce the rules when the um, uh, when the theatres uh, decided to have a go at protesting, uh, but although in the end what happened it was a very Dutch way of um, enforcing the rules I thought because they turned up at the Schouwburg Theatre in Amsterdam and ordered them to to, to close at one thirty and the Schouwburg said well that's fine because that's where we were going to finish then anyway. Um, around thirty mayors, including the leaders of the four major cities, signed an opinion piece in the Volkskrant this week calling for a fundamental rethink of the pandemic strategy. Uh, rather than imposing ad hoc measures in response to the trend in the coronavirus infection figures, the government should introduce rules that are predictable, logical, and reasonable. They argued. <laughs> well, that's that, well, that's not as too much, I guess. It's um, hard to argue with that, right? Isn't yeah, it? yeah. <laughs> so, uh, are we actually going to see some relaxations uh, soon or not? Well, I mean, the next uh, Weg moment uh, or press conference, uh, well, and press conference is coming up next Tuesday. Um, th- there is certainly a kind of growing tide of opinion that um, the rules now are too strict. Uh, we're seeing that uh, the, the infections are going up still quite uh, by about 20% a week, but we're not really seeing that translation to hospital admissions or hospital numbers, which are still declining, although it looks as if that may be levelling off now. Mark Rutter said in Parliament this week he couldn't give any guarantees, but he wanted to ease the rules for the cultural, catering and sports sectors as soon as possible. He's come under pressure not just from the opposition, but also from his own party, the Fefe Day, and his coalition partners, the CDR. One thing that looks like we're increasingly unlikely to get is the so-called 2G coronavirus passport system, uh, which is uh, if you... Uh, you can then only go into a theatre or a cafe uh, with a QR code if you've actually had a vaccine or you've recovered from coronavirus, so not with a recent negative test. And that's, of course, the rules that France brought in last week and Germany uh, did in the autumn. Um, And actually, it seems to make very little difference because both those countries have got quite high infection numbers as well. Um, the Fefe Day and Des Zestach want to keep 2G available as an option, but it became clear during Thursday's debate that the majority of MPs are against it. Not least because researchers at the TU Delft and Utrecht's UMC hospital concluded the QR code system had only a marginal impact on reducing the spread of infection. A much more effective solution would be to test everyone on entry using lateral flow tests, they said, but uh, that infrastructure just isn't there because... Yeah, it isn't. And there's also some more news on the vaccines, isn't there? Uh, yes, because uh, they started vaccinating children, or they will from next Tuesday. Children, that's primary school children aged from 5 to 11, uh, are now eligible to have a, a shot. I think this is the Pfizer vaccine. Uh, the RFEM sent out letters to families of primary school children last week, and the first doses will be given yeah, on from Tuesday. Uh, just under half of parents said they would let their child have the vaccine. Uh, children under 12 need their parents' permission, unlike children over 12 who can decide for themselves. Patricia Browning, paediatrician and epidemiologist at the UMC Utrecht, threw a bit of a spanner in the works when she told MPO Radio Ain that she probably wouldn't give her children the vaccine or she doubted if it was necessary, given that um, children of that age uh, aren't, aren't really at risk of uh, developing serious illness. But one thing that might be persuading parents is just the sheer number of infections among children and how many children aren't able to go to school because of you know, the, the, the sweeping around the classrooms. Almost a quarter of school children had to stay home for at least one day this week because of an infection in the class. 
in insane numbers. It yeah. is. Um, and are the quarantine rules uh, affecting other sectors as well? Yes, they are, particularly transport. Um, I know the, 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 the NS uh, have uh, cut some trains because they just don't have enough drivers and train staff because so many mm. people now are either off sick or having to go into isolation. Uh, Rotterdam is running fewer metro trams from next week for much the same reason. Uh, supermarkets, they've also said they're struggling to stock their shelves because they don't have enough people available. And, of course, supermarkets employ a lot of school, uh, you know, like teenagers, uh, who, who sort of stack the shelves in the evening for a bit of extra pocket money. And, of course, they can't get a booster vaccine. Booster vaccine is only for people over 18. So uh, they're more likely to get the virus, test positive, and then, of course, they can't go to work. Are, are um, you saying that we are experiencing... A Brexit, a Brexit-like situation. It is something like a Brexit scenario. Yeah, we're going to get mean, a taste no of lorries, Brexit. Here. Empty supermarkets. Yeah, I mean, in, you know, in, in, to put it in context, I mean, in, in Britain this is caused by Brexit, whereas uh, you know, over here it's been caused by uh, a massive uh, coronavirus infections. So I think uh, we're going to fix our problem a lot sooner than the UK is going <laughs> to fix theirs. But uh, well, yeah, it is, yeah, we are getting a, a kind of flavour of what it's like to live in Brexit land. Yeah, you said we're going to um, uh, solve this issue sooner than Brexit, but uh, I think you're right because Hugo de Jong is no longer health minister. So <laughs> yes. we might finally have a chance to sort this thing out before Brexit is sorted out as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and that's the problem. I mean, so many people are testing positive. I mean, we're now up to an average of 36,000 a day. And I mean, with 40% of tests being positive, that's really an underestimate how many real. Uh, what the real rate of infection is. Um, and although people aren't getting so severely ill anymore and the situation is improving in the hospitals, we just have, you know, the, the economy is struggling and people in general uh, are struggling to just get on with their lives because you know, so many of them are uh, off sick or having to quarantine because they know somebody who else who is. The kind of bright spot on the horizon, though, is that the, the booster vaccines really seem to be um, working very effectively. I mean, you know, the RVM said this week that, that, that a third vaccine gives you 97% protection against uh, hospital being taken into hospital and 98% um, against uh, the chance of being taken into needing intensive care treatment. So obviously, the, the, the booster it vaccine works. really is yeah. going to be the way out of of, of, of this this pandemic or certainly this phase of the pandemic. Um, if yeah. you've only had the first two jabs, uh, you your protection is down to 85% against hospital admission, but still 93% for intensive care. Oh, and yeah, which is still quite high. Yeah, there were still reasonably are, high. Yeah, um, and uh, but obviously the, the, the effectiveness of the vaccine does wane after a certain period of time. We know that, and we're probably going to need to have regular booster shots. Although the World Health Organization also said that if, if you have the uh, if you have the boosters too regularly, then that makes them less effective as well. So it's kind of it's all about finding the sweet spot, basically. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's obviously... And, yeah, and I think I saw a statistic this week as well um, that something like... Um, and so far, nine people who've uh, had the booster vaccine have been taken into intensive care in the last six weeks. Uh, whereas among people who are unvaccinated, it's over a thousand. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, uh, amazing numbers again, but on yeah. the positive side. Yeah. So get vaccinated is... Yeah. That's, uh, is that's the message we're sending. Yeah. <laughs> The Tweede Kamer has held an inaugural two-day-long debate on the new coalition agreement, uh, which was reached between VVD, D66, CDA and ChristenUnie. Uh, last week, Prime Minister Mark Rutte's fourth cabinet was officially sworn in, and this week it was his turn to defend his plans for the coming three years in Parliament. Expectations were high since it was the first time the new administrative culture could be seen in practice. One aspect of that new culture was that instead of a thick coalition agreement narrowed down to the last comma, 
the four parties aimed to formulate broad goals to leave space for input by and ideas from opposition parties. Last week, the central planning agency crunched numbers on the new government's plans after a request by the Tweede Kamer and concluded that the cabinet spending plans will lead to a national debt of 96% of the Dutch GDP by 2060. And various other reports showed that literally everybody's spending power is set to fall next year. Yeah, we mm. can't do without koopkrachtplaatjes here in the Netherlands, can we? No, uh, no. The, 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 <laughs> we really the, need them. Yeah, yeah. Indispensable. Yeah. It's like a live blog on RTL News. <laughs> it is. Um, this news uh, led to questions from both opposition and coalition parties who wanted to know how the cabinet is planning to compensate for these losses of spending power. The opposition suggested dropping the cabinet's intended uncoupling of the minimum wage and uh, and the AOW, that's the state pension, saying that the plan is asocial and a slap in the face of pensioners. But Rutte and coalition parties refused. Plans to reduce spending on healthcare with 200 million euros were also shut down by the opposition, uh, who said it is incomprehensible to do this in the middle of a pandemic which has shown deep flaws in the healthcare system uh, yeah uh, Margrethe defended this by saying it's not a budget cut it is uh, uh, the budget still rises it's just but we're just lowering the rise of the budget so yeah that's <laughs> yeah, yeah right. uh, uh, the yeah. Hagish jargon for uh, to uh, yeah, uh, yeah to sort of spin it's, the, it's just the way roundabout cut. way of saying it's a budget cut yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, additionally, the cabinet was also criticized for a recent decision to increase gas production in the earthquake-ridden province of Groningen, despite promises to reduce extractions. But Rutte said it's unavoidable due to a uh, contractual obligation with Germany and the geopolitical situation in Russia and the Ukraine. Yeah, and what struck me the most, when just said the new administrative of culture, they aimed to, you know, uh, uh, have broad plans and not narrow everything down to the last mm. detail but it also meant that in this debate whenever an MP asked a question on how we're going to reach this goal how we're going to do this Margaret had to answer with an answer like I don't know yet this still has to be worked out and yeah. that's the obvious downside of this um, new approach I guess um, uh, it leaves a lot of room for uh, 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 input and suggestions but you know he just couldn't simply answer most of the questions because you know there's still no plan basically yeah. or you could say it kind of gave him an opportunity to avoid answering the question by just saying well we're, we're going to have to work out the detail the precise detail of that later exactly that's yeah. that's uh, that's how I would yeah. explain it as well yeah, yeah. Well, whereas in the past um, uh, Richard has just said uh, I'll uh, you'll need to ask the relevant minister about that I don't know so yeah. he just yeah. slightly or, shifted or, his uh, his deflecting Deflect. He's given himself a new deflection tactic. I I I would agree with that as well. Yeah, and uh, um, and if there were a narrowed down plans or detailed plans, and uh, the opposition said, you know, let's do it a different way, or he wanted, uh, or, or they made suggestions to change it, Rutte basically said no to all the suggestions. So yeah, other commentators and the opposition parties as well, they said, well, this new Rutte, this new administrative culture Rutte, uh, 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 behaves remarkably like the old Rutte. So yeah, yeah. it's um, there's still not uh, uh, much of this new administrative culture uh, could be seen yet, I guess. No, and in the context of uh, old habits, not uh, uh, the old habits dying hard, I guess, unfortunately, we have to talk about Geert Wilders as well. Yeah, um, Geert Wilders is the leader of the largest opposition party, the PVV, and that means that, you know, every debate, uh, every budget debate starts with with him that's his mm. right as a, as the opposition leader and that also means that the, you know he's he 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 is in this position for 
what is it, more than a decade now. And that yeah. means that every time we see the same thing happen, uh, 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 Wilders makes a speech, he says some outrageous stuff, people are offended by this, they come to the microphone, they have uh, the same fight over and over again uh, yeah. every year. And yeah, that's exactly what happened this year as well. Only one slight change. He criticized uh, um, uh, uh, several MPs Personally, he attacked them. Uh, for example, uh, Fonda Saia of D66 and Kauta Bukalit of GroenLinks. Yeah. Uh, they uh, wear headscarves and he attacked them by saying, you know, this is not something that should be worn in Parliament. Uh, 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 this is a symbol of Islamic fascism. And, you know, they were sitting in a room. So mm. it, in that regard, it was a little bit different, I guess. Yeah. Um, he also attacked Salah's sister, uh, Salua Salah, uh, uh, who was convicted of three years in jail uh, in the Hofstad terrorism trial uh, she uh, I believe she's also um, a volunteer for the VVD party now so yeah he had a lot of um, uh, reasons to attack both parties both Deza Sester and the VVD um, yeah he, I think he was trying to make out that uh, that she was going to be like walking around the Binnenhof uh, you know on, yeah. or, the, or the new Binnenhof headquarters you know un, un, unchallenged and that somehow that was a danger to him which was kind of yeah. pie in the sky and all kinds of levels because I think this, uh, um, Sophie Hermans pointed out that uh, you know she doesn't actually work directly for the VVD parliamentary group so that she she, she wouldn't have uh, ordinarily have access to the Binnenhof. No, exactly. But yeah, Geert Wilder said, yeah, uh, she is the sister of an MP, so she could just be invited over to the Binnenhof. So yeah, it was all it was a it was it was a nasty debate, I guess, yeah. and a lot of lot of insults were um, were uh, uh, given by by Wilders, and he also criticized the press. He described journalists as servants of the power, for example, and that sort of iterates. Um, uh, what we have heard from Forum for Democracy for the past months now, uh, who are clearly attacking the media and uh, 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 journalists, and uh, it comes to the point that journalists can't even do their job anymore and have to, you know, hide their identity. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, you see, the NOS have to now t t take their logos off the vans because they get attacked, and uh, you know, photographers are, are beaten up when they go out to take pictures in the uh in the countryside and uh yeah it's a really ugly climate and i think uh, you could see vilders very much stoking the fires of kind of uh you know yeah. uh, hatred and social division and uh yeah i mean it was just really it was a really excruciating thing to sit there and have to watch and he just constantly went banged on about you know this person's a terrorist and this person is uh you know, like you say like an, an an enemy of the state and he's going on about people with dual nationality and why there was why they were a threat to, to him and to the and, and undermining the netherlands and just the usual kind of builders cliches but just really kind of he really ramped it up yeah, um. yeah, and uh, Rutte, Prime Minister Mark Rutte responded to Wilders' uh, tweet uh, about the new Justice Minister Dylan Yasilgus. Uh, Wilders he receives around-the-clock police protection, and he tweeted that he doesn't trust the new uh, Justice Minister, who is of Turkish descent, with his safety. Um, well, he doesn't trust her, her with his safety because she is of Turkish descent, I have to say. So, yeah, it's a, a step further. And Rutte said that he was disgusted by that tweet and that uh, Wilders now has fallen beneath a moral bottom line. So, yeah, it was... Um uh, uh, it was uh, a terrible part of the debate, and this was just the start of it, right? And then we still yeah, have it was a start, but it went on for about the first like two hours of the debate. Didn't yeah, it? I mean, they started the debate about eleven o'clock, and he was still going at lunchtime. 
Um, at which point I think I switched off and had a sandwich because I was just so tired of <laughs> tired of watching it. But, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and then a journalist of the of the Telegraph uh, went to your uh, kitchen window and asked if you were Tim Hoffman. That's right. Oh. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So, so uh, not 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 really a very uh, encouraging start to this new um, term in government and uh, the new political culture. Well, actually, yes, there, there is an encouraging start because uh, the Tweede Kamer officially uh, voted on a motion that uh, says they have confidence in the new government. So for, ah. for Mark Rutte, Excellent. this whole uh, this two days of debate ended well. He has the uh, he has the confidence of Parliament uh, for his oh, new good. cabinet. That's yeah. good to know. Yeah, yeah. There was I've got to say as well. We should explore more a bit more about this um, a Christian Mafia Bergkamp because I just thought she was really poor. You know, she didn't really step into Fitzgerald's at all and she kind of tried to do it in a very measured way and uh, to just sort of gently suggest to him that he, that he was crossing a line but never actually used any of the powers of censure that she has in terms of switching off his microphone or, or, or stopping the debate and uh, she got a lot of criticism for that and I think she, was, she deserved it because she was just very, very ineffective. Yeah, and we've seen uh, a similar thing happen today in the uh, Corona debate um, that was in the Tweede Kamer. Gideon van Meijeren, a Forum for, Demo- Forum for Democracy MP, also uh, yeah behaved way out of line, yeah. and uh, she 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 handled him much tougher than she did uh, with Wilders. I have to admit, but still, it's um, it's very frustrating to see MPs behave like this, who are clearly out of line and clearly misbehaving, but. Yeah. Yeah. On the other hand, you still have they are still members of parliament, and you know they are they are elected and they are there to say what they want. Uh, and yeah, it's it's just a very fine line uh, between uh, freedom of speech and the right for a po- for a politician to say whatever he wants. And um, yeah, this mis- it's whenever I hear people saying um, uh, uh, Vera Bergkamp she she does a terrible job, then I think what's the other what's the other uh, uh, what should, should she have done? I mean, she yeah, can but the, turn I, I off a microphone. I don't think, I don't think Kadir would have stood for that. She would just simply have cut him short and said, look, either, either you shut up now or I'm going to switch your microphone off. It's, it's, yeah. uh, it got to the point where it was quite clear that he's, yeah, for all of, that you have freedom of speech and you're a parliamentary representative, that there are rules of procedure and all the MPs know what there is and what they are. Certainly Kit Wilders does. He's been in Parliament longer than any other party leader. Uh, so, so he has no excuse. And he was making direct personal attacks, not just on MPs, but for people who who weren't members of parliament, who were just relatives of members of parliament, who uh, he had his a bee in his bonnet about because they were Muslims or because they were supposedly connected to to terrorist groups, and um, she, she she just refused to step in and um, yeah. and, and use her powers to, to to cut him off. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, these sort of allegations are of course of a different order than you know just saying that I don't know the Corona measures are. Yeah, uh, Wilders quite often comes out with stuff about, you know, Muslims are a threat to the Netherlands, which is also quite self-saving and palatable, but that's part of his political program. And that's what he, that's a platform he's elected on. So yeah. th- 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 those kind of statements are harder to cut out. But when he's actually just literally just um, you know, d- 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 launching personal attacks against people who aren't there to defend themselves, I think that, that crosses a line. And, yeah, that's true. You yeah, know, And uh, I think Sivana Simons made the point that uh, Bergkamp's job is to make sure that... Uh, that, that uh, 
um, the, the parliamentary chamber is a safe workplace for people. And I think there's all kinds of issues around not just Kate Wilders, but other members of his or representatives of his party, like Dion Krauss, who do not make parliament yeah. a safe place to work if you're a woman or if you're a Muslim. Um, because, you know, there's algorithms around Krauss uh, for, 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 for sexually abusing his wife, and, and, very, and, 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 uh, and which led to him being given a kind of informal suspension by Kadir Arib. Um, he's quite often out of line and Fia Berkham I think has to toughen up A new year has brought a new government new coronavirus infection records and a new low in standards of parliamentary debate We do our best on this podcast to navigate the putrid and plague-ridden waters of Dutch politics on your behalf but we couldn't do it without the support of our loyal and generous patrons so this is the point where I take a minute to say thank you to all those kind souls who keep the wheels of the Dutch news podcast greased and underwrite our theatrical haircuts. I uh, want to make a uh, a special uh, shout out to uh, to Kim Ferguson who uh, won right. uh, one of the mugs uh, last week. Uh, she voted in the Dutch news podcast. Yeah. So I emailed her about uh, you know to letting her know that she she had won the mug and she uh, pointed out that she was actually the first person to be a patron of us. So uh, yeah, I think that's a very nice little fun fact. So a special yeah. shout out to Kim. Uh, thank you for um, yeah uh, staying yeah, with Kim, us for Kim so long. Kim, our longest standing and most faithful patron. Thank you. Yeah. A, a big a special thanks. Thanks to you. Uh, a patron since uh, the Griffith Fay cabinet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very nice. Yeah, she, she's the Geert yeah. Wilders of this podcast. I mean, her her ends... She just cancelled her subscription, Paul. Yeah, I'm sure, but it's, <laughs> this joke was worth it. <laughs> was it, though? No. <laughs> this week we say welcome and thank you to new patrons Dirk Koopman, Ben Papst and Margaret Morgan. Margaret is uh, the only one of those three who has a question for us this week. She asks, which Dutch accounts would you recommend on Twitter? I'm keen to follow tweets with interesting feeds on Dutch culture and politics, and which are generally amusing and entertaining. So... Yeah, I would say to start with, but these aren't actually, well, I guess Ben Coates is Dutch officially. He has a Dutch he passport, is, yeah. of course. No, he has a passport I, and everything, yeah. I, I would say um, uh, Ben Coates, definitely follow him. He has, uh, he always have funny takes on uh, Dutch culture. Um I mean, uh, speaking of which, uh, the Netherlands doesn't have a culture according to our own queen, doesn't? don't we? Is that true? Yeah, she uh, once famously said that the Netherlands doesn't have one culture right. and that uh, uh, led to a lot of ophef and a mm. lot of uh, outrageous um, yeah, as people, especially from the right side of the political spectrum. Um, yeah. Nonetheless, I would say Ben Coates, uh, Molly Quell, follow her as well. Uh, she always, always have uh, interesting takes and uh, 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 comments on Dutch culture. Uh, to follow, I mean, I, I guess she's looking for Dutch uh, people, I would say Simon van Teutem. He um, yeah, he's, he's very good, definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah he's an Oxford uh, he, he, a student, philosophy, political philosophy student, I believe, and he uh, 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 he also always have interesting uh, uh, analysis on Dutch politics. Yeah, um, yeah. Do you yeah, have uh, do you have any suggestions? Also, I think uh, yes, someone who's very good on Twitter is Emine uh, Uyo, or who goes by the name of uh, Overlistener. Um, yeah. Who's uh, now a trial columnist, I think, but uh, actually made a name for herself just making very just uh, interesting and erudite and perceptive uh, Twitter threads. Also a very good responder on Twitter, I always think, when people try and troll her or get a rise out of her. She just comes up yeah. with these very measured but very sharp replies. 
Um, I think very good. The other other person I think, um, d- depending on if, if it's your kind of thing, is who's very good on Twitter is um, the uh, Telecast court correspondent, and I've forgotten her name. Saskia Bellamont. Saskia Bellamont. She's really good uh, to to follow yeah. as well. If, if you just yeah. want to keep up with uh, live court cases, often you know some interesting things going on, especially for when things like the Taggy trial are going at the moment. Um, you know, she, yeah. She's very professional and and, and very good. And uh, yeah, we just talked about Tim Hofman. Follow him as well, I guess. Yeah. Uh, the broer van Roos. Yeah, we will we will put all their um, uh, Twitter ads uh, in the liner notes, so yeah. uh, uh, you can find them as well. He he uh, yeah he he is very active on Twitter and uh, uh, yeah also uh, active in the um, uh, 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 you know in the public debate. So uh, yeah, you can follow him as well. Yeah, and, and follow Paul as well if if you're not doing already for just for very funny tweets about uh, Dutch politics and also really interesting threads about buildings so yeah show us yeah. enjoy yeah when you put those up and you can follow gordon derrick as well no it's, you don't uh, want to do that <laughs> <laughs> i was just thinking that this is a courtesy thing but uh yeah it's uh, it's uh, <laughs> no you, you, you didn't no. mean it so yeah, okay. uh yeah so, so i hope that gives you a bit of a uh, bit of a starter margaret um a few interesting people and uh, let us know how you get on and what you could do, for example, Simon van Teuten, he's also very active on, on, on Twitter. So just uh, look at his replies, see who he replies to, yes. and then you can just uh, 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 sort of uh, find your way in the Dutch political debate um, on Twitter. And then you can uh, perhaps follow more people. Yeah, there's a guy called uh, who calls himself a Haag's insider as well, who kind of gives you quite good lowdown on what's going on in the Binnenhof. Uh, bit, bit of info, uh, info. He calls himself an insider, often it's kind of just summaries, but very good summaries of uh, live issues of the day but occasionally a bit of a few insider tidbits as well um, yeah so he's worth it and also just one more i've done i need to look up there's suddenly suddenly occurred to me yeah there's a podcast uh called stukroda Vlees, stukroda Vlees, yeah. uh, which i always think is very good and uh, the people who 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 run it and i've forgotten his name stukroda Vlees. sorry yes Apologies for my bad grammar. Yeah, it is incomprehensible grammar, so I, I will won't blame him. <laughs> Tom van der Meer. Yeah, Tom van der Meer. He's a yeah. he's a uh, political scientist at the University of the UVA, so University yeah, of Amsterdam. University yeah. of Amsterdam. Yeah, he, he I has, just followed him as well. <laughs> yeah, I, I think he's very good and worth following, and his podcast is worth listening to if your Dutch is up to standard. So he's worth following. Um, so L- lots to choose him. from. Lots of lots to choose from. Yeah. You can join our ranks of culturally superior and politically informed patrons for as little as a dollar or a euro a month by signing up at patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash dutchnewsnl. It looks like everything's going to be more expensive in 2022, and that counts for rents as well. Rental prices in the non-regulated sector went up by 5.3% in 2021, and that's the fastest rate since the third quarter of 2018. Eindhoven saw the biggest year-on-year rise, which was an eye-watering 11.7%, while rents rose by nearly 10% in Rotterdam and more than 8% in Amstelveen. In Amsterdam, the increase was a more modest 1.7%, but the capital remains the most expensive place to rent in the country. New tenants have to pay on average €1,347 a month. Pararius, which carried out the research, said the shortage of houses for sale was having a knock-on effect on the rental market. Lots of potential buyers have nowhere to go, said director Jasper de Groot. They earn too much for social housing, but not enough to buy. Non-rent controlled homes make up to 7% of Dutch housing stock. 
The rent-controlled sector, which has a maximum monthly rent of €764, Euros, is restricted to people on low incomes. Yeah, it's all very depressing, uh, isn't it? Yeah, um, it is. de Jonge has a lot to do as uh, the new housing minister, uh, I would say. Yes. Thank goodness they've got a real expert on the case, see? Yeah. Someone with a proven track record. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you just keep making it more depressing, uh, <laughs> Um And all of this comes on top of a big squeeze in the cost of living. Yes, as we, as we mentioned earlier in the context of the parliamentary debate, um, every household's uh, natural spending power is going down. The Budget Institute, NIBUD, calculated that households will have 40 euros less to spend on average this year because of rising prices. Uh, higher gas and electricity bills and the rising cost of petrol are mainly to blame. Overall inflation has hit its highest level in 40 years. It went up to 5.7% in December. And Nibbert said the price rises will be felt by everybody, but particularly people on low incomes, uh, people living in rental housing, as, as, we just, as, so, as we just mentioned, and elderly people who rely just on the state pension. And of course, uh, there's been this whole row about whether the state pension is going to be you know, decoupled from, um, from, wage, uh, from rises in wages. The government has cut energy minimum taxes. Minimum wages, right? So minimum wages. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah which which is which also rises with inflation. So it rises uh, with inflation. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, yeah. So yes. Yeah, so, so the idea was is that the, the moment so the the pension is is tied to the minimum wage. So if the minimum wage goes up, so does the pension. They want to kind of end that relationship. Uh, which is bad news if you only have a state pension. Um, the government has cut energy taxes this year by around €400 Euros per household to offset the higher energy bills, but Nibid said that wouldn't be enough to cover all the extra costs. More depressing news. More depressing news, yeah. yeah. Your uh, money is uh, going up in smoke. Does Nibid say anything about the prices of stroopwafels? No, it doesn't. Uh, I think that should be uh, a separate index, actually, the rise price of stroopwafels. Um, hmm. I've noticed the, 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 my baker's put the price of bread up quite uh, substantially this uh, uh, this year. Okay. Yeah, which I guess I mean, if you're baking bread, you need a lot of uh, heat to you know to, to, to fire those ovens. So if gas prices go up, price of bread will yeah, go up as well. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like Saint Petersburg in 1917. <laughs> um. According to a new book, the hiding place of Anne Frank family in Amsterdam during the Second World War was betrayed to the Nazis by Jewish notary Arnold van den Berg. The book, The Betrayal of Anne Frank, was written by Canadian writer Rosemary Sullivan, claims to have solved the 77-year-old mystery based on the work of a cold case team led by a former FBI agent. Anne Frank and her family went into hiding on July 6, 1942, but they were found and deported in August 1944 uh, to the Auschwitz-Birkenau death camp where most of the hiders died. Anne and her sister Margot died in Bergen-Belsen concentration camp in February 1945. During that time in the annex, Anne kept a diary which was published after the war and became one of the most famous books about the Holocaust. Uh, it has always been a mystery how the hiding place was found by the Nazis, but it was always expected the group was betrayed by someone. The cold case team looked at 28 scenarios but dismissed 27 of them as extremely unlikely or impossible, leaving the betrayal by Van der Berg as the only possibility. The theory is based on an anonymous letter Anne Frank's father, Otto Frank, received after the war, claiming that they had been betrayed by Van der Berg and the assumption that the Jewish council, of which uh, he was a member, was in the possession of a list of secret hiding places of Jews. The Jewish council, or Joodse Raad, was set up in 1941, ostensibly as an organization for Jewish self-government, but in fact served as an instrument for the Nazis to facilitate the smooth selection and deportation of Jews. 
So, uh, a fairly stunning revelation, um, and it, it, it uh, made headlines around the world uh, the, 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 in, in newspapers, including the New York Times and I think CNN and do a documentary. But um, a lot of experts and historians in the subsequent days uh, kind of cast some doubt on uh, the book's conclusions, didn't they? Yeah, they criticized the authors for claiming an 85% certainty of their conclusion, even though it is only based on very thin evidence, they say. For example, the anonymous note Otto Frank received was written almost a decade after Van den Berg's death, and the police dropped the investigation after finding no further evidence. And also the existence of the list of hiding places in the possession of the Jewish Council is questioned, with historians and experts saying that there is simply no evidence uh, that it existed, while the authors write there were there are two second-hand accounts of the list. And they say uh, circumstantial evidence is also evidence. That's yeah. uh, that's that's what they claim. That is true, to be fair. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's still it's 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 very thin evidence. It is. Uh, only these yeah. two these two uh, clues basically uh, on which they draw this conclusion. And yeah, it is it is just um, pretty problematic to 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 smear the name of this man, even though. You know, there, there's almost no certainty about this, mm. and um, yeah, it's um, uh, you have to be careful with this. And I think uh, a lot of the um, uh, 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 experts and historians are. Uh, I agree with them that uh, you know they shouldn't just present this um, allegation as. Uh, concrete as they do because yeah. you know there's no basis and also the media is criticized for taking over the accusation without scrutiny the publication of the book as you said generated countless headlines around the world but journalists were uh, who were given an advance copy had to sign a secrecy agreement and were prevented from approaching other experts to check and clarify facts so yeah since then other articles were published questioning the book's findings uh, in the guardian for example and uh, the new york times had an excellent article about that as well and yeah. Uh, other in uh, in the Dutch media as well, yeah. uh, we've seen similar uh, articles. Yeah, I find I have to say I find that very troubling. This uh, the, the way that they had this very hard embargo, um, and it's not how an embargo system is supposed to work. The whole idea of an embargo is that you get you, you all agree that you won't publish before a certain date, and actually gives you time to go and do some proper research, ask some questions of people, and get to grips with what's often a very complicated subject. Whereas here, it seemed to be much more of a kind of like a gagging order, basically. Yeah, that you got the book on the condition that you didn't speak to anybody about it and of course because these are very contentious conclusions obviously the publisher will kind of orchestrate this uh, system you know, because from the publisher's point of view they want to give the book as much publicity and sell as many copies early on as they can um, so they wanted this this uh, conclusion to be presented as a kind of definitive account of what happened to Anne Frank when it really isn't we're never going to know for sure what happened to Anne Frank yeah. it's a long time ago the evidence is very sketchy I think it's plausible that this guy Anna van der Berg was the person responsible because it seems that I mean Otto Frank had this letter I mean that seems a fairly um, reliable, credible piece of evidence in itself and I know that and, and it is known that Otto Frank said in the, during his life that he that he had a very strong suspicion for who had betrayed his family but he wouldn't say who it was and that makes yeah. sense if you think there was someone else in the Jewish community because Otto Frank would have been worried probably that there would if he'd said another Jew betrayed me that people would have said oh look the Jews just betrayed each other it wasn't you know it wasn't the Nazis or the Dutch people or, or the fault of the Dutch so you can see why he yeah. felt that was a sensitive thing and he wanted to keep it to himself. So there's a lot of the circumstantial evidence does kind of support the theory, but I think it's not, you know, the, 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 presenting it's it as kind of a, as conclusive evidence. As, yeah. as, uh, and 
um, it, 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 it's stretching it and going too far. And I think it's more, it, 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 yeah, it's one of those situations where obviously the publisher want to have as strong a story as possible. But, you know, it, 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 it's a very, it's one of those historical subjects that deserves to be treated sensitively and respectfully. Finally, some sports news. The Eredivisie and Koken Kampioen Divisie have resumed after the winter break, still in empty stadiums uh, because the government has extended the ban on supporters. Uh, it, it just it just stays a, a stupid name, the Koken Kampioen Division. <laughs> it really does, the yeah. Kitchen Champion Division. I yeah. mean, okay, go ahead. <laughs> a lot of clubs aren't happy with the situation and they're talking about letting spectators back in kind of following the uh, the lead from uh, the from the bars and the cafes and the theatres uh, if the ban on spectators isn't lifted next weekend uh, when uh, so that's not this weekend coming up but the weekend the 29th of January VVV Fenlo Top Os and Auder Den Haag have all told RTL News that they were talking to local councils about what would happen if they defied the rules Ironically, Topaz and Ardo couldn't play last weekend because their opponents had too many players in quarantine to field a team. So that kind of puts it in context. Back on the pitch, uh, PSV just about held on to their one-point lead in the Eredivisie with a narrow 1-0 win at Groningen, while Ajax comfortably beat Utrecht 3-0. Feyenoord are now seven points adrift after they lost 1-0 at home to Vitesse Arnhem. Their goalkeeper Justin Bailo had an absolute howler um, to lead to Vitesse's goal, and actually it was a weekend of goalkeeping howlers. There were so many goalkeeping mistakes, I started to wonder if Hugo de Jong had been appointed as national goalkeeping coach. <laughs> PSV and Ajax will meet in a top-of-the-table clash in Eindhoven on Sunday. So that's uh, one to save for all fans. Uh, so I guess we reached the end of the transfer period. Or not yet? We're getting towards it, yes, at the end of January. Ah, okay. So there's another so, week of the transfer news to go. And So is there any transfer news? Uh, there's been a bit. Uh, Ajax sold uh, the, uh, a reserve team striker called Brian Broby to Red Bull Leipzig in the summer, but they now have brought him back on loan cause to cover for Sebastian Aller, who's away playing for Ivory Coast in the African Nations Cup. And uh, Brian Broby made an in, uh, immediate impact. He scored twice against Utrecht. Uh, so hmm. the champions have also been linked to former PSV striker Stefan Bergwijn, um, who has been struggling to establish himself at Tottenham, but not anymore because he became a folk hero on Wednesday night when he scored twice in injury time against <laughs> Leicester to turn a 2-1 defeat into a 3-2 victory um, and sent the fans into delirium. Uh, some good YouTube footage of that uh, if, if you haven't caught up with it on Twitter. Uh, so now Ajax have focused their attentions on another PSV old boy, Mo Ihataran, who's currently at Sampdoria. Uh, PSV have signed Joey Fearman from Heerenveen for around 6 million euros while Feyenoord, despite their depleted resources have managed to secure the services of 20-year-old Swedish winger Patrick Verlemark from BK Hecken, that famous old club Wow, yeah <laughs> <laughs> Excellent news here uh, and there's also some, some upside-down news from Australia, isn't there? Yeah, some upbeat, upside-down news from Australia. Not just because they've managed to banish uh, Novak Djokovic. I, I just love to see that uh, uh, several people on the right side of the political spectrum always applaud Australia for having such yeah. a tough immigration uh, policy, basically <laughs> dropping unwanted people on deserted islands. And now yeah. they finally kicked someone out who was unwanted, and all of a sudden uh, Australia has turned into this tyrannic dictatorship. It was glorious to see. <laughs> This this transition of of, of this this U turn in appreciation of Australia on yeah, Twitter the, 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 the past stock, weeks. Uh, yeah, the stock of points based Australian migration systems has gone right down with people exactly. like uh, Nigel Farage, particularly 
who yeah. had become a champion of Novak Djokovic um, uh, over the uh, last week. He was devastated that Novak had been subjected to the same immigration rules that he wanted to introduce for the UK. Yes. Yeah. One player who on. has been making the most of his visa is a uh, Dutch player Botik van der Sandskulp, uh, who we what talked a about. What great name! Great Excellent name. Yeah, name. you might remember us. Uh, we talked about him uh, when he had his breakthrough at the U.S. Open last year, um, when he went all the way to quarterfinals and then lost to Daniel Medvedev. Uh, well, this uh, year he's become the first Dutch player to make the third round in Australia since Robin Hauser eleven years ago. He was given a walkover in the second round when his French opponent Richard, Richard Gasquet withdrew injured. Uh, van der Zanskulp, uh now faces uh, Daniel Medvedev again, uh, hmm. this time trying to get through to the fourth round. So he's going to find have to find a way to beat the US Open champion if he's to progress and if, if he's to extend his stay in Australia. Well, good luck to uh, good luck to Botic, and, yep, and uh, uh, hope, will, you're, uh, hope you're not heading off on the uh, Djokovic Express next week. <laughs> That's all that we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We will include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. You can get in touch with us by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl. If you want to help us out, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating. You can also back us on Patreon at patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl and earn yourself a free shout out on the podcast. My thanks to question mark, question mark, question mark. I'm question mark, question mark, question mark. And we'll be back next week. (music) Thank <music> you.